everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to the 37th episode of the Drunk Friend Podcast. As always, we are your hosts. I'm Travis, also known as Nest Friend. That's Alex, also known as Snest Drunk. Alex, how's it going on this side of the calendar? We're, uh, we're into the 2021. Feels a lot like 2020, to be honest with you. No, I don't, I don't mean to depress anyone. Well, it does. Um, it's just time. It's just different numbers. You know, it's not different. It really. <laughs> are you one of those people where it's like you you, res, you you start to build a sense of resentment towards that whole thing where it's like 2020. Oh, well, it's just holding the door open for 2021. It's like <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter. I know it doesn't matter. It's like people. Some people really thought that something about the calendar was bad juju, and <laughs> as soon as it flipped, it was you know. Rainbows shooting across the sky, Skittles <laughs> coming out of water faucets. Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out. It's like, when has this happened before in the past? Is Did this happen between 94 and 95? <laughs> like, when 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 the Houston Rockets repeated as NBA champions? Like, when, when, when did this ever happen before? Like, I don't understand this. Like, wh- what is this sensation that people are talking about? And I really hate when people will blame a year for celebrity oh, yeah. deaths. Like, 2016, I think, was a rough one because we had, you know, David Bowie and I think maybe Rob, Robin Williams that year. And I think it was 2017. 2017, and people were blaming the year. Merle Haggard and Prince. Yeah. Like, people sometimes will just die. That's just that's just it. But again, not to Merle depress Haggard. everyone, you know. Merle Haggard died on my birthday. He was born on my birthday, and he died on my birthday. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> are you are you set it, settled into the new place? Are you done breaking shit around the house? No, of course not. Um, that's the ritual of of living in a new spot, is just beating the shit out of everything <laughs> that you can beat the shit out of. Yeah. Um. No. Um. We actually. Okay. This is gonna sound snobby and weird, but I have a a fish in my yard in a pond, mm-hmm. and they're really cool. Like they're cool fish. I see them. I feed them. You know, all that sort of stuff. And but we've got a hawk oh, that no. comes by. It's a gray-tailed hawk. Yeah. And when we came over um, one time, we saw this hawk just, like, perched on um, a stone nearby. And it was, like, it looked like a fucking statue. Like, it was just so intimidating looking. Hawks are cool as shit. How big? They're awesome. Oh, man. Uh, Much, I would say twice the size of a pigeon. Like, Mm. you know, gray-tailed hawk. Okay. It's not it's not like a fucking bald eagle or anything. I was expecting like, that, like an albatross. But you're saying it's it's <laughs> no. much smaller. Okay. No, but it's definitely a ho- you can tell by the beak it's a hawk. Okay. It's got that curled hook mm-hmm. hawk um look to it. And it's looking for, at our fish and it wants our fish. Ulysses S dog heroically comes out, chases him off. It runs off, or it, it runs off. It flies off. Yeah, imagine. A, <laughs> I'm like, that wasn't a hawk. You saw a possum running off. <laughs> yeah, it was actually a pigeon. Uh, two pigeons on top of another, like, uh, uh, what's it called? Vincent Adultman from BoJack Horseman. But um, anyway. <laughs> They're wearing a trench coat and a fake hat. Or wearing fake a trench mustache. coat, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, no, but now uh, we've encountered the same hawk. I, at least I think it's the same hawk. I would have to assume it is. Uh, two more times, and Ulysses S. Dog has scared it off two more times. I'm so proud of this dog. He's he's like our hired security guard for the yard. Um, it only it's it, when we saw it first, it was in the middle of the afternoon, but it's come around twice since then in the middle of the morning, 
or I should say early morning, like around like 7 a.m. or so. And it, he, all it does is it sees Ulysses and it just flies away. It's like, oh, no, nope, show's over. Bye. Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, good job. And I high five my dog and I go back in the house and I don't see that hawk again. Very cool. It's pretty freaking cool. That is cool. I, 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 I love nature and, you know, Bob Ross is a big inspiration. So I want to be more like Bob Ross and appreciate wildlife and animals and stuff like that. And I appreciate that hawk for trying to do what it's going to do, but you can't do it in my yard, buddy. No, you can't. You know, it's funny. My wife took up bird watching over the holiday. She downloaded an mm. app where she now just holds up her phone and looks back and forth between a picture of a bird and a bird and then <laughs> tells me what it is. And what's funny now is that whenever we, she put a bird feeder, a bird feeder right outside the window. So now when nice. we see like a shadow dirt by the window or some flutter, her and the cat yes. both run to the same window to look outside. And it's <laughs> hilarious to me. So she could probably tell you what, what breed of hawk we're talking here. I mean, you already know it's a great tailed hawk, but what kind of, what kind of birds do you get out there? Do you get cardinals, like bright red cardinals? Yeah, we or, get the cardinals out what? there. That's the state bird. Of course, we get the cardinals. We get a lot of the jackass oh, birds. Okay. Yeah, some chickatees, <laughs> some you know whatever. I don't know. I don't really don't know the names of all these birds. She'll. She... I mean, do you get like? I mean, I'm thinking common birds. Like in my own head, like I think of a common bird. I think of robins. Yeah. Like, at least in Minnesota, Orioles. Like robins. Robins do not exist in Minnesota, in uh, New Mexico, but they exist in a million of them exist in Minnesota. Uh, it seems like all that exists down in New Mexico are birds of prey and then like pigeons and doves and hmm. that's fucking it. That's interesting. Like I never, yeah, I never see anything else and I miss birds. That's, that's weird to me because I don't care about birds, but I wonder if I would care if I just didn't <laughs> see them. Yeah. I, I, I didn't actually wonder that, but now I do. Hmm. It's like, do I miss birds? Huh. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. It's very strange. I, I, I probably do. Yeah. I was going to say, speaking of missing things, our, the podcast has gone, we were weekly for a solid 25 at least episodes, I think. And then we went bi-weekly when things got hot and heavy with our personal lives. Not hot and heavy in like in a, you know, we're not, not a seductive way, but like in a, we got Get busy. Get off me, Trav. We, Jeez. Uh, you, the beard. It's the beard. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, it might go weekly, bi-weekly. I just wanted to put that out there that we do have plans to eventually make it weekly again. But if you get a weekly episode or a bi-weekly episode, it just happens. By weekly, we, we mean the spelling W-A-E-A. K K L Y. Like, can I spell that again? W E A K L. Jesus Christ. W E A K L Y. Can I say letters for God's sake? Do you, do you want me to use it in a sentence? <laughs> um. Yes. They they will always come out weekly, as in not strongly. But uh, yes. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I got you. I, you know, and that was going to lead to a joke about how my elementary school teacher, his name was actually Mister Weekly, Aww. and it was and it was spelled weekly, like w, like not strongly. W yes, like not strongly. <laughs> thank you. I'm better with with words than I am with letters. Sure. Letters give me problems. Okay. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I just was throwing that out there. I don't know your thoughts on that, but we it might no it's 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 case by case i mean it really is uh for me it's uh it depends on my uh day-to-day job uh same so and and that's crazy lately because uh i work at a school so um and they're everybody's coming back from uh winter break and that's a big deal so you know, right on we got yeah. this massive influx of influx influx 
influx maybe words aren't my strong suit either but uh influx of students jesus christ uh of students but yeah we have anyway. a very articulate guest later so we got to get all of our fumbles <laughs> exactly out of the way here and we also I, I guess i brought all this up we also are considering this a new season we don't know what that means but we might bring back some old guests who knows Eh, probably not no i don't know you never know uh yeah um let me let, trev i'm gonna put you on the spot who do you want back Oof! Let's, I'm going to to get on everyone's right good side. I'm going to say all of them. Um, <laughs> Come on! But if I'm list, I mean, there were some. There were some really good ones. There were some that I want back because I wasn't done talking to them. Like, for instance, <laughs> I feel like I could talk to Jason Heine for another week. Oh, Jason Heine is the man. I mean, he's. I feel like you could talk to him about anything. Right? Like you could just come up, bring him on to talk about. You know, just throw a subject at him. I love that guy. He's great. He's awesome. But, I mean, honestly, there's not really anyone in there that I was like, that person sucked and I hated talking to them. Number one, that's a bad thing to do <laughs> if you're a host because that's just that's just no, rubbing, ruffling feathers. I, I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately being difficult. That's, that's, that's uh, yeah. Let, let's, let's, let's not have, uh, let's not have Pam on again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was going to, yeah, I was going to say just the same thing. In case you're listening, Pam, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that at all. Glad we agreed on Pam not coming back. Very good. <laughs> but yeah. Oh God. So there's I'm that. I'm so sorry, Pam. Uh, recent videos. Do you want to jump into that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had, what is this corrections 2020? Okay. So I've been so caught up in work and other stuff that, mm-hmm. I have to confess that I have not seen this, so I don't know what Corrections 2020 is. Yeah, well, it's and like it's- Corrections 2019, but newer. And what it is is I go through all of the comments, not all of the comments, but any comment that was helpful, like they were like, guy, you didn't, you know, this was this or that was that. Anything that was helpful or constructive and not douchey, uh, I said, hey, that's a good point, and then I show you know where I got it wrong, where they got it right in the video, and it's kind of a way to be like, thanks for your comments and your constructive criticism. Also, there were a couple funny ones in there where somebody was just a total chode, and then I pointed that out and whatever. But here's the thing. Uh, I made a ton of mistakes in my corrections video. I put the wrong footage what? over some games. I said at the end of the video, can't wait to make more stuff in 2020, when I really meant 2021. Oh, ah. uh, <laughs> man, it was just chaos. So I'm going to let it sit there for a little bit. I might just take it down because it's not really a review, but it was kind of meant to be kind of funny. Don't and also, I don't want it in it. It's, it's so, I have to release another video to correct that video and just remove it. But um, it's good. It's, it's fun. <laughs> exactly. Just leave it there. No, I thought, uh, I, I was like, whoa, I've never heard of this NES game, Corrections 2020. It's just the way you listed it on oh. your recent videos thing. <laughs> uh, no, that just makes it funnier. I'm sorry. Um I was like, Corrections 2020, NES Corrections 2020. Let's Google that. It brings up <laughs> NES news release, NDSC news releases, Nebraska Department of Correctional stuff. <laughs> stuff. Today, Director Scott Frakes announced that seven, sta- seven staff members with the Nebraska something. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. That joke has worn itself out. It did, people, early. Uh, yeah, very early. Uh, you also did Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Who did it? And I remember uh, playing this game as a kid, and all we wanted to do was just get Jessica Rabbit. That's it. We just wanted to, like, where's Jessica Rabbit? Mm -hmm. Where is she in the game? Uh, How do we call her? 
Yeah. And then we found out her phone number and then we called the number and it's just like a, a line about how to get in the game. Mm-hmm. And my childhood friend and mine were both like, you know, to be honest, we don't really care about the game. We- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But no, that's yeah. fair. No, that's, that's fair. We it's uh. It, the the game itself um was ahead of its time in a little bit. Yeah, I thought so too. I had a lot of not so bad things to say about it in my video. I was like, you know, it's true to the movie in a lot of ways. I thought it was mostly positive. Yeah, I think it is. But um, according to the comments, a lot of people were like, I was too nice to it, and I was like, well, that's too bad because I don't. I think it. I think it is a difficult game in a lot of ways. They could have made it better, but um, it was trying to do something. You can see what it was trying to do, and I think it's pretty admirable. It stuck to the movie as as best as it could back in the day. Whether that's charming now... It's obtuse. Mm, I don't know, but it is obtuse. It's obtuse. It's, it's, a, it's a tough game to get into because... Um... When I I'll say when I played it when I was a kid it was like a hop and bop I, or I should say I was used to hop and bop stuff that was just like oh well, you play as Roger Rabbit and you run to the right and jump mm-hmm. on enemies and blah 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 but here you actually play as you know you follow the movie just like you say and you know you have to like you can't just like spam punch you have to like tap the yes. punch button that's a hard and, lesson to learn and, even for a 35-year-old man a couple weeks ago. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's you learn to appreciate those things as you get older though. It's like, "Oh, I get what these these folks were going for now." So, yeah. yeah it's just that the source material is uh, you know, back in what was that movie, 88 or something like that? Yeah, something like that. But, yeah. Have you played Dick Tracy? Oh, I know it's similar. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty similar. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it, it's it's got kind of the same vibe too, where it's like overworld and except you're not getting constantly shot in your car. Which... Yeah, 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 probably a good thing. Yeah, oh yeah. Lock on, lock off, lock, lock on. on. Um, yeah, it's uh, the song or the song, the uh, game that uh, got that U2 song walk on in my head for an entire week as I was playing this song, <laughs> as I was playing this game rather, because that song walk on reminds me. I've got good memories from that song, so it's a it's a you know U2. Everybody makes fun of U2. I don't particularly care for U2 that much, but I that song is has a little bit of sentimental value from. When I first moved out from my parents' house in the early 2000s, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, um, Lock On, I'm rambling. You are. Lock On was just a, a Mode 7 game that, uh, you know, it's it's better than what you would expect. It looks cool, and it really looks cool when you do the uh, HD Mode 7 thing. And when this video posted, I was expecting people to comment more on the HD mode seven stuff. Not one single person has. And I think that's, yeah, I think I've looked through all of them and I think that's weird that nobody has commented on like the widescreen mode seven B S N E S smoothing thing. And it look, I think it looks cool as shit. I made sure to point it out at the end of the video. Not a single person was like, whoa, what is that? Or anything like that. Huh. That's, it's kind of disheartening. So, uh. So you're done? But I thought the. Quitting the channel? So I'm done. <laughs> I'm, hang, I'm hanging up the headphones. I'm hanging up the microphone. They're being raised to the rafters. Retire my number. That's it. 
That would be the I worst way for you to go out, like on lock on, just because <laughs> of thirty three thousand people, no one said the thing. Oh man, no, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just expect people to get excited about that, the same stuff that I do. Considering I've got like a million subscribe, I shouldn't say. <laughs> you know, it's, it sucks being in this position in certain ways because it's like I can't exaggerate anymore. I can't say a million subscribers because I actually have two hundred thousand subscribers and it's fucking weird as shit. Hey, by the way, congratulations for crossing the two hundred k threshold. I don't know what to do with that information. It's so fucking weird, it is and, weird. and overwhelming and strange. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I wonder how many of those people are dead. I wonder that all the time. <laughs> That's this, this is raw emotion you're feeling, folks. <laughs> like, right off the bat. What we're, what like, we're feeling is 8.2% of whatever you're drinking. Oh, God, yeah. No, I'm, I'm serious, though. Like, I don't know what to do with that. I like, think my favorite line in that video, which was the favorite line of many... Was that you called a guy big McLarge huge? <laughs> oh, I can't take cr- I can't take credit for that. Oh. That's that's all Mystery Science Theater three thousand. I wanted to make I should have made that clear. Oh, I didn't um, catch the I, reference. But, it's funny as hell though. No, but seriously, well, if you if you didn't catch the reference, please go watch the episode of Space Mutiny um, from the show Mystery Science Theater three thousand because it is amazing. And it's a perfect beginner episode if you've never seen the show. Oh, very so good. So go watch that. If you thought that sh- joke, if you thought that reference was hilarious, please go watch that show. It's my favorite show that has ever existed in the world of the universe. He doesn't stop talking about it, so I'm left to believe that. Ha! And then also, you did some Kung Fu Heroes. You're getting in on my turf. Yeah, no, that was a Patreon request. I know, And I, I enjoyed know. that. <laughs> I enjoyed that um, game a lot more than I thought I would. It is jank as hell, mm. but it is jank in a weirdly enjoyable way where it's like a top-down view. It's a top-down beat-em-up. It's two-player co-op. The hit detection is crap, but it's <laughs> consistent in a weird way. Like you got, you just kind of like, kind of ease into it. It's kind of like put. Oh man, I wish I'd thought of thought of this for the video. It's kind of like putting on someone else's leather jacket. You know where? <laughs> no, I <laughs> you don't. You got to kind of like, Ugh. it's like, Ugh. but then you kind of ease into it and you kind of like move around a bit and it's like, okay, all right, I I see how this works. Oh, I wish I had put that in the video. Damn. But anyway, <laughs> that's kind of how what, what it's like. <laughs> nice. Did you get the chance to play it co-op? I I, I admit I didn't get yes. to see that video. Okay, great. Yes. No. 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 The video is, is posting tomorrow. We're oh, recording shit. on Wednesday, so oh, okay. it's posting tomorrow morning. Um. But yeah. No. It's it's super fun. Uh. It's got a lot of problems. It. Uh, in fact, I say in the video itself, it's like it doesn't look like much. It doesn't sound like much. And in fact, it doesn't really play like much. It's still pretty good in its own weird way. I kind of like it. Cool. Very cool. I, I haven't spent a lot of time with it. I do haven't, obviously, but I haven't uh, haven't taken a dive. Maybe one day. You should try it out with a second player. I will. I've heard. I've actually heard people people have recommended it to me uh, for multiplayer. So let's do some emails real quick. We have uh, some pretty short ones, which I think we can get through pretty quick. First one here is from Sam. Hello, Sam. He says, "Hi guys, I love the podcast. Thank you, Sam." I'd love to hear or see some content about the most beautiful games you've ever played for the SNES or NES. Visuals, music, overall, or whatever. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Sam. I think you have a lot to pull from here for the Super Nintendo in terms of beautiful. I think 
Earthworm Jim, uh, Aladdin, and most of the Disney games for Super Nintendo are the visuals are just mm. incredible. You know what the most unrecognized, uh, incredible visual, like just like holy crap! Look at the sprite animation, Pinocchio. Like just pull up a video of Pinocchio on SNES. It's incredible. Like the sprite animation is like holy crap. That's the damn movie right there. <laughs> it's really it's really fun. It's I was really taken aback when I first uh saw Pinocchio on Super Nintendo. I was pleasantly surprised. Nice. You you gave me the idea of Disney there. I hadn't considered that when I was going to answer this. I was originally going to say like Castlevania 3 just because I love the music. I think it's visually great. It's hard, but I think it still <laughs> checks some boxes. Uh, but yeah, like Aladdin on NES and Jungle Book and um, yeah, a lot of those Disney features. Even Little Mermaid looks freaking great on the NES. Little Mermaid looks really good, yeah. It, and it looks like the movie, too. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing. Yeah. So that, I guess that would be my answer. I mean, obviously it's, it's going to pale in comparison to the SNES stuff, but you know, even stuff like Kirby on the NES looks fantastic and sounds really good. Yeah, when you talk about like most beautiful games, uh, it you end up talking about like okay, what games end up encapsulating an entire world in and of itself, where they're very engrossing, very you know, just like stop what you're doing and look at what is on the screen, listen to what's happening. I mean, and there's an endless amount of stuff for that for Super Nintendo and, and frankly for NES too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Chrono Trigger, there's Final Fantasy VI, there's, and for NES, the late edition Disney stuff, uh, even, uh, what do you call it? Oh, geez. Uh, the, the name is escaping me. Uh, Little Samson. Yeah, that's a pretty one. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you look at the, when you look at the uh, sprite animation and the backgrounds and all that sort of stuff, it's like, holy crap, this game is unreal. Uh, I have recently biased with that game, obviously, but it's it's crazy yeah there was even an nes uh lion king that i think released in the pal regions that uh looks pretty dang good on the nes dang yeah brad writes in saying holy crap you guys actually read my email Mm -hmm. you're not just disembodied voices i hear in my head very cool (laughs) what if we are though yeah brad what if we are (laughs) what if we are what if we're just your part of your paranoid delusion brad <laughs> it's always a highlight to see your podcast come up on my playlist in honor of thanksgiving boy we're getting around to this just in time huh? <laughs> i'm curious what games classic or modern you guys think are most likely to cause an argument if played with friends Ooh. thanks again for your hard work on the podcast and happy holidays brad <laughs> We're talking about that. When is this episode being released? Uh, January something. The uh, eighth. Happy holidays, Brad. <laughs> Sorry, Brad. Uh, okay. I think really any game that's competitive. I I will point to sports games for myself. I get really competitive in sports games. If someone's playing me in Madden, I will whine if I lose. I will accuse you of cheating if I don't win. Like I'm a real wait big a baby. Second, about wait a stuff. second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. This is coming from Mister NCAA 14. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so what, stop saying Madden. Start saying NCAA 14. That's, that's what you really mean, right? Well, that's true, but here's the thing. No one else that I know has NCAA 14. I can only... Oh, come on. That's a whole cult audience. Own up to it. I know, but none of my friends do. I only play games online with friends. I don't like Stranger Danger. <laughs> what? Come on. Yeah. Really? You nobody uh, you you're not playing cuz that is a cult thing. I've I've looked it up. Oh, I know. I've seen it. I told you I started the subreddit. I'm the guy. I'm the lord of NCAA 14. It's kind of but here's the thing with NCAA 14 when I play it, I play in my franchise mode. It's a very private thing. I'm I'm always the shitty team trying to I'm coming up. I'm Ball State. Okay. Who's oh Ball State? Okay. Oh yeah, or Excellent. UTEP. Somebody shitty, and then I'm building it by myself. You know, I'm getting the recruits. I'm doing all that stuff. But if I just do, want to play what, online, what do with you people, name your coach? <laughs> Are you like Coach Charisma or something I'm, like I'm that? I'm Big McLarge Huge. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Spunk Flicklock. But when it comes to playing with other people, I usually have to default to Madden because I'm the only one that I know. <laughs> that okay yeah I, that's fair that's just the way it is man but i'll get pissed i will scream at you if if you win i won't be your friend i'll storm out i'll hit reset i remember uh one of my fondest memories my one of my fondest video game memories i should say was when uh well, a tradition of mine back when i lived in minnesota was to go to my brother's place and watch the super bowl over at his house or his apartment or wherever he lived and um, it was the year that Tampa beat Oakland. That would have been t- uh, the season of 2002, but it would have been like January 2003. So, and when we did that, we always played each other after the game on NCAA 2002, 2003, whatever, on Xbox or PlayStation or whatever he had or whatever I had, etc. And... <laughs> it was awesome because after that particular Super Bowl, the Oakland Tampa Super Bowl, I took the opening kickoff back for a touchdown. Like I it was the greatest thing ever. My brother was like le- legit <laughs> like throwing the controller. I ended up winning like 38 to I don't know, 28 or something like that and it was just it was all because <laughs> I set the edge, I set the momentum, you know, I'm talking Dabo speak over here, (laughs) you know, just, just, it was so awesome, like, uh, uh, sports games just have a certain way of affecting you, it's, it's freaking hilarious, both hilarious and really just, just fun, uplifting, but that's the thing though, I don't, I don't get as attached to like, you know, Call of Duty or Halo, like if I lose in that, it's like, yeah, I know, I'm bad, I get it. But like in football games, <laughs> I get attached. I used to get attached to stuff like uh, Unreal Tournament. Um, I miss those games. Unreal Tournament was my shit back in the early two thousands. Hmm. I wish they would still make those, but I guess that's not a thing anymore. Yeah, I don't guess so. So is that your answer? Classic old sports games. Oh yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> it absolutely would be. I'm sorry. Welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, no, it it would be. I mean, it has been, and it would be in the future too. <laughs> so don't ask again is what you're saying <laughs> no i'm just saying like that's what it is yeah okay our last question here is from our pal jjs boyce he says hello trav and alex thank you for 2020 and i look forward to much more drunk friend goodness in 2021 here's a question for you if you have time and thoughts on it 
Is there a piece of media, perhaps a film or a game or both, that is generally not that well regarded or much noticed, but which really resonated for you? Note that I'm not really thinking about cult classics with small but devoted audiences, more like something that worked for you personally and which you have rarely, if ever, found another fan of. Bonus points, do you have any insight into what made it work so well for you? Because I was going to say, uh, I know it's kind of a cult classic, but Dark City was a movie uh, that was really freaking good back in the late 90s that I could not believe was like, what in the... I, I, I feel like I've brought this up before, but Dark City is really, really good. Everybody should go watch that movie if they're into like dark sh- dark city you're into dark stuff imagine that hmm. mystery sci-fi f- thriller you know you know crazy people stuff dystopian thing you know who'd have thought i loved that movie as far as games geez that is tough i wouldn't even know do you have an answer to that i would have to think for a bit yeah i don't have one that I think like I'm the only one that really enjoys it kind of thing. I think I'm in the minority on some, but then when I look them up, they're still rated pretty well. Like I feel like in in my immediate friend group, I was the only one that really liked L.A. Noir, just because I have this true crime detective, you know, boner for things. And that game scratched yeah. that itch a little bit, but I think it was really slow and plodding and not what other people really wanted. But I like that game quite a bit. But um, I've learned to keep that to myself lately because every time I bring it up, people are like, oh, that game. Ooh, boo, dude. Like, okay, all right. We don't have to talk about it. (laughs) It definitely looked cool. That's for sure. Yeah. I think it's got some good stuff. I mean, it's not perfect, but I I had fun with it. Uh, There is another movie that I think I I like and no one else likes because I don't think anyone else has seen it. And every time I bring it up, people are like, what are you talking about? And it's called Turbo Kid. And I think it was just only on Netflix at one point. It could be Turbo Kid just on netflix but it's like this post-apocalyptic wasteland but it's very 80s themed and it's just crazy as hell and i love it it's got well it's got michael ironsides in it and he's got one eye that's pretty cool <laughs> does it yeah oh it does yeah. holy cow see now you're in phil monroe chambers who's that it's got nobody in it except michael ironside <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a, usually oh, a good thing to say about a movie, but Look this at is that fun. poster. Oh, my God. It's cool. Okay, that po- that poster is undeniable. Yeah, it's And great. it's got the G.I. Joe, like, USA stripe going through mm-hmm. it. That's that's badass. See? Okay. All right. I'm in on Turbo Kid. Thank God. Finally. Somebody else. See, J.J., you brought people together with your question. I'm bringing it. Okay. Well, coming up next, finally, we get to the guest here after Alex has been rambling for 40 minutes. Um, Jesus, uh, is that how long it's been? Uh, oh my it's God. pretty close, though. Uh, coming up, though, we have Daniel Greenberg. He's a video game academic, a big smarty pants. He's a professor at George Mason University. He teaches game development. He teaches video game history. And it's really incredible. He's participated in a ton of convention panels and a wide array of in-depth gaming topics. And I thought, a very enlightening interview. All right, so thank you, Daniel, for coming on and having a chat with us. We know that you're you like to give talks. You're you have a big resume of talks, so I appreciate you coming here today to talk to Alex and I. And you're a professor at GMU, and one of the coolest topics, I guess, if we all had a, a could choose what we would teach 
we would probably all choose something in the video game industry, but you're probably going to tell us it's not all sunshine and rainbows. So tell us about what you do as a professor at GMU and how that feeds into the video game world. Yeah, sure. So uh, for the uninitiated, GMU is George Mason University. Uh, we're based in Fairfax, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, and I'm a computer uh, game design professor. Uh, that is to say, I'm responsible for helping students who come into our program uh, learn how to make games. We're housed under the College of Visual and Performing Arts, uh, so it's an arts degree that these students are getting. So we get students that come from a lot of different disciplines, uh, artists, animators, musicians, um, George Mason also has a program underneath the computer science department that I actually come from. I have a CS background. I'm a programmer by trade. Uh, however, a lot of the work I do as a teacher uh, is with the students of a more artistic nature. Uh, so when you're teaching design, we have to you know, work them up to using tools and skill sets because it's obviously games being very multimedia. Um, nobody does any one thing um, and then goes over to the next thing and knocks that out with equal acumen, especially early on. And I focus a lot on the first and second year students. Uh, so a lot of it is getting them up to speed, making sure they've got their, their terminology down, getting them comfortable, and, and kind of breaking through the in inertia of just making their first games. So say my name is Travis, and I'm some snotty 18-year-old kid from <laughs> wherever Virginia. He sounds awesome. And... <laughs> <laughs> and I want to attend. Uh, I want to, uh, you know, m take your class. Uh, first of all, is is it a is it a three hundred level class? Is it a what? Uh, like, so right now, first year freshman take it. Yeah, I'm teaching uh, one and two hundred level courses. Uh, I have a sure. full time job outside of George Mason, so unfortunately, oh, okay, um, I can't commit as much time as I'd love to uh, to the university. Uh, so I tend to teach uh, intro to game design, um, game okay. history. Uh, we're doing a basic programming course uh, as well to get students comfortable with um, some programming principles. Uh, but yeah, I, I work primarily in the 1 and 200 level. Okay, gotcha. So snotty Trav over here hmm. from whatever Virginia <laughs> is like kind of, you know, he's cynical and he's, he's mad at the world. And he's like, okay, okay, Dan, Professor Dan, what's, what's, what games have you made? Do you get that question a lot? And what's your answer to it? I don't um, – there is sort of this weirdly um, wonderful thing that happens uh, when you work at the university level. Uh, you don't have the same caliber of um, opposition that you do. And I have taught high school. I've taught elementary school. Um, one of the things that happens oh, sure. when, you, when you teach uh, at the college level um, there's a pro there's a filtering. There's a process there, right? We don't accept everyone into the university, and the game design program itself is pretty competitive to get into because, like you said yourself, uh, wow, you know, I can major in double book accounting. I can major in, you know, ornithology. I can major in making video games, and each of these things has, um, you know, its own uh, attraction, but. Games being the biggest, you know, form of media in our world today means we do get a lot of students um, applying for the program. The ones that get in tend to be pretty dedicated or devoted to it. Uh, also, we restrict the classes in a certain way to where uh, students that are just looking for electives, they might say, oh, well, yeah, ah. video game course, that's going to be really easy. I'm going to sign up for that. Well, if they're not a major gotcha. or a minor, you know, so there's, there's a little bit of um, – defense in the way that we've kind of arranged and orchestrated the uh the program to keep too many people who think oh this is no big deal this is gonna be an easy thing um 
kind of filter them out of the uh, out of the major. Yeah. See, by by using Trav as a crude example, I was actually talking about myself. I was going back to <laughs> my eighteen year old days when I was first. Uh, you know, when I would have been a first year college student, that would have been my snotty attitude. With like, this guy's teaching stuff. That's cool, but what games did he make? What did he, did he make? Like Quake or something? Or, uh, but or you something know, like that. I mean, if really pressed on the subject. Um, my background in design is primarily in the um, in analog games, uh, the, the tabletop world. Um, I worked with Sweet. a small. I worked with a small press uh, company called Sorcerers of the East Coast uh, briefly, helping design Alpha Chronicles, uh, which was an RPG that they published through like Drive Through RPG. Uh, I worked for the better part of ten years um, at a game store. Uh, that sold traditional games, card games, board games, things like you know Magic Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, um, kind of catering to, to develop. You know, um, developers of all kinds would come in and demo their games. We would have the people from Games Workshop uh, come in from the UK because they like to show off our store as an example of what a chapter-approved store looks like. So a lot of my background is in you know physical tabletop games uh, and sort of the study and design of those, which helped me, I think, better understand. Uh, the digital game space because I was able to combine my history of programming in school and programming as an interest in a career uh, with sort of the, um, I don't know if you want to call it the uh, paradigm of games, but really just sort of how games function on a series of hooks and mechanics and you can kind of visualize them as code uh, and then you start to realize, oh, well, I can combine these two passions into one thing. Uh, I guess combine that with the fact that I was getting really bored in college. Uh, my second, my first degree was IT. My second degree was computer science. I would go into the computer labs at 9, 10 p.m., sit down to work on, uh, you know, whatever CS project I'm working on, uh, building an operating system from scratch. And I look over, and there's students from the game design program, and they're stuck on code working on something. I go over, help them out, go back to my thing work on it for a bit, go over, help them, go back to my thing. And after doing this for a couple of weeks, kind of going like, why am I, their thing's way more fun. Why am I doing this thing? Yeah. So I ended yeah. up switching my major right at the end of college from computer science to computer science with a focus in game design. And when I came back a few years later to work on the master's, uh, ended up going the arts route with the uh, master's in game design rather than the, the computer science route. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. So you said you, your background is in a lot of the analog games, but you're also the, the head of your own game studio. Isn't that right? Yes, which also kind of ties into the university thing a little bit. Um, I started Winter on Game Studios. Uh, the idea was conceived back in 2010 uh, when I was thinking of starting up an indie studio after I graduated with my CS degree. Uh, however, I also like having money. Uh, and I live in a part of the country where it's very hard to um, to live on the goodwill of others. So um, I have worked on and off most of my adult life. Uh, I paid my way through college. And so uh, I take jobs here in the D.C. area. It's very common to be a, you know, work for a contractor. I've worked for various government contractors. I've worked for USPS, Department of um, Defense, uh, Department of Justice, Health and Human Services, um, doing you know programming work for for various companies, and that's been great because it's kind of given me the bandwidth and the the financial wherewithal uh, to do stuff. But it did kind of limit what I could do uh, with Winterine Game Studios. In 2015, I had just started working on my master's degree, 
and I decided I would make a series of videos explaining concepts uh, for independent study credit. Uh, so I talked to the, um, the people in my department. They said it's a great idea. I went out and bought God, a few thousand dollars worth of equipment because I guess, I don't know, call it zeal, call it being excited <laughs> um, to, to jump in on this project. Um, but I bought it. I tested all this stuff out. I mean, I had mixers, microphones, green screen, nice 4K camera, all sorts of stuff that I bought. And the university administrators came back later and said, well, you know, we can't actually give them independent study credit for that. And no, you know, we're sorry. It's like, well, what do I do with all this equipment I just bought? You know, I had like all the stuff uh, that I picked up and set up. I built a studio in my originally uh, my townhouse in um, we called it the historic video gaming district of Clifton, Virginia. And <laughs> my friends say, well, you know, why don't we do Let's Plays? And this is where I kind of show my age a little bit. You know, I, I look at them like, well, what's a Let's Play? <laughs> and, you know, I start watching what's on YouTube and kind of studying this culture. Um, and it tied in a little bit with something that had been bouncing around in my head for a while, which is this concept of game appreciation. You know, we study art appreciation in schools, and art appreciation is to help you understand at a certain level where things come from and sort of the fundamental building blocks of understanding a medium. And I found games to be both simultaneously lacking in codified examples of this, but also just replete with people trying to do it. You know, you think about the the sheer volume of YouTubers and content creators, groups like Retroware when they were big. I'm so glad to see them getting rebooted now by ScreenWave. Um, and a lot of the others uh, developing content, talking about sort of the history, um, you know, seminal uh, creations and creators and games. And I found it such a compelling thing that I kind of wanted to contribute a little bit to that, you know, to that world. And so I decided to kind of pivot what WGS was from being a developer um, to being more of a content creator uh, in that space. And so we've been producing Ion Gaming for a little over five years now. We would have started season six, but season five kind of got derailed by big worldwide thing happening this year. <laughs> and um, thus we've kind of decided to extend that out for another year. Uh, but uh, it is my friends and I essentially taking game ideas, um, mulling on them, playing them, and then in a sort of a post hoc, almost 2D pattern, the idea was to play games, talk about them while we're playing them, and then when we're done the game, do a review where we kind of talk about the game, why it matters, you know, our experience playing it, some of the history behind it, and kind of close out uh, the game. So you talk about um, understanding parts of the, or I'm sorry, you talk about understanding uh, the medium of video games similar to the way that you would like movies or literature or anything like that. But you've done talks on stuff like full motion video, which features stuff like Sega CD and 3DO. And <laughs> it's a very awkward time for video games. So you're not shying away from any part of this process to get from where we were to where we are now. Um, is that something that you, are there parts of the process in there that you enjoy more than others is is there stuff that you wish more people had appreciation for? Oh, I, I wouldn't say I wish. You know, I, I kind of accept what the community decides it likes and it doesn't like because that's very organic. And the last thing I want to do is kind of, you know, say, no, you should like this, not that, you know. 
No, no, um, no. That's but... the way the world works. You got to speak in declarative sentences and you got to <laughs> interrupt people like I just did. And you got to impose your opinion on them and say, you're supposed to like this. Well, th- I love our FMV panel from this is from MAGFest, uh, January 2020, b- before everything. Um, partially because that's the first panel um, my wife, Alex, and I did together. And we did that when we were still engaged. We spent days. We actually took time off of our day jobs uh, to build the video montages for that panel and to research it all. She has a background in acting. She got her master's uh, from the Oslo Repertory in um, Florida. And so she really understands a lot of the background of what actors have to do and how they prepare and plan and sort of the challenges that they have and I had the understanding kind of from the the game background you know what mechanically had to happen behind the scenes for these clips to kind of go together seamlessly and for the game to maintain certain game states globally or locally for whatever it was doing uh, to kind of make it function uh, but it turned out to be a, a wonderful panel. We got standing room, um, and which in MAGFest isn't easy. So, you know, it's a huge building. You know, it's really large uh, lecture halls. Um, but that one, that one definitely, maybe recency bias, but that's probably one of my favorites from the last few years. Do you, are you able to, because um, you said you do a little bit of lecturing uh, at the college or the university level about video game history and obviously development. Are you able to reuse any of the lectures that you give at these conferences for that purpose or vice versa? Like, is a lot of this, you know, fit into your work or is is a lot of this just passion? Yeah, I'd say more the latter. I find my students create things and challenge me in a way that forces me to kind of reconsider my assumptions and and what I go into lecture panels um, knowing or thinking, you know, because obviously – uh, every time I have to go through 60, you know, 80 midterm games and then uh, kind of see all these different design patterns and ideas. And every every year the students are inspired by different things. You know, it was a real shell shock for me the first year I taught to talk to the students and be like, well, I want to play games because, you know, I grew up with a PS3 and you just – it hits you, Right. Your experience is so <laughs> different from theirs and uh, what they played and what they think and therefore, you know, what they then say, what what's missing, right? Well, I want to make a game that's a combination of X and Y, but you played games that, you know, two or three or four parts of the games you played growing up components, you know, make a whole of just one of the two or three games because the complexity is increasing, you know, the complication of design, the number of people involved. And so they really force me to go back and double check and triple check my work and see, well, what are they tackling now that were just things we kind of assumed before? Uh, Or what subjects are they willing to get into now that we weren't getting into five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Uh, and, you know, and that's that's exciting stuff for me because it's hard to find uncharted territory um, when you are not in the forefront of design yourself. So now I'm curious, like since you've been teaching, has there been any era in gaming or any particular game for that matter that a student of yours has, has come up with or a game idea that sticks out to you that as something unique or does one era stand out to you compared to others in terms of influence? Um, I find 
a lot of my students tend to get their inspiration from stuff they played growing up or currently really enjoy, but they are constrained by the limitations of what I give them and the limitations of how much they've done in an engine. Uh, so typically my students early on, they might have a little experience with Unity or Unreal, uh, but most of them come in completely uh, unequipped to, to work in any engine. And I usually start them with sure. something like Construct, where they can get comfortable working in a 2D game space with drag-and-drop programming, um, building sprites, uh, making simple audio, and just kind of constructing single-screen arcade-style games. Uh, I usually challenge them to play a pre-83 crash game for at least a half hour to get a scope or understanding <laughs> of what I expect their first game to be like. Oh, and neat. inevitably, they will take those constraints and build something that nobody in the 80s would ever have thought of, like, mechanically for a game. Uh, you know, because they've been exposed to, to rhythm games. They've been exposed to, you know, massively multiplayer online RPGs. They've been exposed to, um, I, what's the thing now that is, you know, Souls-likes? Or is it, you know, Rogue-likes? Or is it Metroidvanias? You know, whatever... whatever it is that they really were captured by whatever spoke to them um they would find ways to combine or build these things into combinations that i you know i had never seen before and i hope they take as um successes in their challenges to build ever more complicated things because i know by the time they're done with my classes and they're on to the three and four hundred level stuff um the scale just gets bigger uh i had some students i worked with um I actually uh, was working with them when I was working on my second bachelor's, and they built uh, – it's amazing. It's a firefighter simulator that they have since gone commercial with and sell to actual fire departments across the U.S. Uh, it simulates backdraft. It simulates you know the natural burn rate of different materials, and it allows firefighters to practice and train in a VR environment um, – before ever actually working um, to try uh, live fire exercises. Because if you're familiar with fire science, you know, they have a building somewhere in the middle of nowhere that they will set on fire, and firefighters will train on an actual legit burning building. Uh, as you can imagine, it's much cheaper and much safer to spend, you know, 100 <laughs> hours in a simulator uh, before actually going and trying that. Uh, and the more accurate that simulator is to the way fire behaves in real life, the better. That's, wow, really that awesome. is amazing. Yeah. That's uh, that's fun stuff. Curiously, and you, you kind of mentioned this just now, but I was going to ask if you knew of any of your students. And again, I, I can't remember how long you said you've been teaching, but are you aware of any of your students working on big projects or working for big companies or who have worked on big games that started um, in, in your courses? Yeah, I, um, I won't name names, uh, but I know we've had students go on to, we used to have Mythic Entertainment uh, that did, you remember like Dark Age Camelot um, and some other uh, titles that was based here in Fairfax. We sent a lot of students, you know, their, their way over the years. Um, they've sent Shutdown. Uh, we have, uh, I know we've had students go out to um, EA, uh, to uh, Zynga uh, back when they were, I guess they're still fairly big. Um, I think we've got uh, an alumni uh, that's working uh, on League of Legends now. Hmm. Uh, so we, you know, we've had students kind of go to different places. Actually, uh, 
uh, one of our more challenging topics right now because we're trying to get the alumni association up and going so we can actually keep track of everybody because we have so many students go through the prog you know the program mm-hmm. uh it's not necessarily easy for us to keep up with all of them and they're not all congregated on one social media we don't have one discord server for everybody we don't have you know everyone on the same linkedin uh network but interesting yeah i was because i was thinking i bet there are you know because you said some kids come in maybe they've never messed in an engine and i'm sure there are some kids that come in very you know good at it already and have have worked on making games since they were a a teenager or could figure out what letters were on a keyboard and and again i think you said that you're mainly in the introductory courses but do you find that by the end there's a lot of equal footing among those kids or some just really well, good all the way through and it would sort of make me sound really amazing if i said mm-hmm. all the students are on equal footing when they leave my course because it implies i somehow put them all there um in truth obviously everyone's going to get what they get out of a, of a college course you know how much mm-hmm. effort are you putting into studying it you know how much information did you come into the course with uh, prerequisites and taking stuff in order in, in a, any four-year school means some of your students are going to cruise through it because they are comfortable with the material. Some of your students are going to struggle with it, and they might get up to speed. If you're you know, lucky, they all get up to speed by the time your course is done. Uh, I find with the design class, we do a pretty good job of getting everybody up to speed with terminology, uh, partially because... Um, Without getting too much into teaching theory here, doing is really better than telling, right? Having a student Mm -hmm. get their hands dirty and actually build a couple games, and I have them do two game projects in one semester. They do one as a midterm individually and one with a group as a final. Um, The process of building that stuff is really, really helpful, um, both in breaking their inertia to game design and kind of getting them comfortable with the pace, the speed, the expectations of it. Um, A lot of students come into game design, uh, we call it a golden baby. They have this idea like, oh, I want to be a game designer and I have this amazing idea for a game. 80, 90% of the students in any introductory class in game design are going to say, I have the best idea for a game because they're all idea people. And it's like, well, I got to get you from being an ideas person to someone who can implement those ideas, whether it's creating the art, whether it's creating the sound, whether it's creating the game, whether you're going to be a jack of all trades and do everything, um, you know, whatever comes of it, it comes of it. But I've got to get you capable of seeing your vision to life somehow. And so I usually tell the students, your best two options are you can either accept that you may not be able to create the game the way you want to create it and try to anyway. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Um, But a lot of students are very scared and trepidatious, and they don't want to try to execute on that dream vision of theirs if they don't have the skills to do it. And it kind of creates this um, difficult, uh, not a writer's block, but more of a cramp that you kind of have to work out. Uh, And I find I actually like to suggest the James Cameron method. (laughs) That is to say, um, Hmm. hold on to that idea, bubble wrap it, set it aside, make something else. Uh, I'm sure this oh, is I, anecdotal. I thought you're gonna, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to say spend $80 billion no, on something but, to, to have it but, made. Okay. But hear me out. Um, he did it when he could. I, I think Cameron himself said what? That he wrote Avatar when he was in high school? And with yeah, a, I think he did. With yeah. a name like Unobtainium for the material, I'm not surprised. I believe him when he says it. Um, <laughs> but that's that's amazing. He he creates this thing. He knows he can't execute on this vision yet. It's not going to be as good as he wants it to be. Set it aside. Make Terminator. 
Well, he can't even make Terminator 2, which he, again, said was kind of where he envisioned the series, so make Terminator 1 first. You know, understand the limitations, your scope. You know, what do you have to work with? What are your capabilities? What's your engine? Um, what's your art team look like? What's your music look like? What platform are you building this for? What are the constraints that allow you to create something? You know, working within... Um, the borders uh, of what you have in front of you to make the best thing possible. And if you can't execute on your golden baby within those borders, just bubble wrap it and set it aside. Ideas don't die. You know, if you yeah. love something enough, you will come back to it. I really like that. And the reason I asked that question about the equal footing, you know, with the, with the whiz kids was mainly because I feel like a lot of uh, university programs to an outsider feel gated by just not having the knowledge beforehand and i think there's some some sort of expectation that like well i can't go into that because i don't know anything about it but the whole purpose of that program is to teach you everything you need to know about it so i, I was just kind of curious if if someone you know was just interested in game design and maybe they didn't have any prior tools but they had a passion for it if they could go in and and still you know obviously yeah, we, we, blood sweat we and tears get, but yeah we yeah. get students that don't have experience coming in and and working it and some of them turn out to be some of our best students because we don't have to unteach them any bad habits, right? Mm -hmm. That they are coming in, they're accepting, they're ready to learn, and they pick up everything you throw at them. Um, you know, the best students aren't necessarily the fastest ones. They aren't the ones that, that got there before you got to them. Um, but, you know, and then again, other times, yeah, you'll have students who um, you don't challenge them until their, you know, their senior year when they really start getting into things they haven't done before. Uh, I like to think that as a four-year school, one of the advantages we have over places like, uh, say, DigiPen or Full Sail um, is that our students are challenged to do in a complete academic curriculum, right? They're still taking core classes. They're still working on um, a number of things outside of their major, and it may be that, you know, in their third year or their fourth year, they decide – Game design isn't necessarily their passion, but maybe they want to get into simulation design, or maybe they want to get into, well, I can create software that allows me to map crowd simulations, so I want to work, you know, uh, to help deal with crisis management. What happens when, um, oh gosh, I, I don't know, what, what sport should I go with here? Do you, which? Oh, I was just going to bring up a sports analogy. Yeah, sports analogy Jordan's here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jordan Spieth talks about how much his baseball, that guy was ready to go. Uh, I think he went to the University of Texas and um, on a baseball scholarship, he ended up playing golf there. Uh, and he, that guy's won three majors. Yeah. I mean, uh, he, and he credits his baseball experience for right. that. And I didn't realize I was going to be interested in games at an academic level until my fourth year of studying computer science at the university. So, you know, it works both ways. You don't necessarily know what your passion is, but college tends to be, you know, um, not to be cliche here, but it's, it's a period of discovery. It's a chance to get out and find out what it is you really want to do. And it may be that you come in wanting to do something else and leave wanting to make games. It may be that you come in wanting to play games and leave doing something else. Either way, as long as you are getting useful knowledge out of the time you're spending there and it's pushing you towards a meaningful career, I, I'm good with it. So that brings me to this question then. like, Where would you like to see gaming development classes going and where do you see them realistically going? Like, 
one over the other? Do you see two different categories between artistic and commercial? Yes. Something like that? That's – I'll stop you before you say it. that's the one. That is the big fight right, right. now, right? Because if I were to go ask a, a studio, a company, what, what do you want me to be teaching these kids? They'd say, I want them to know these engines, these tools – if they can come in here, start dropping some speed trees, and if they're comfortable with their IK handles and and blah, 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 then great. Or, you know, do I want to teach them theory? Do I want to teach them something that when they leave, they're going to create something that hasn't been made before, that they are enterprising and innovative, and they aren't just trained to build things in an engine for a company? Um, that's a real struggle because – this is an extremely competitive industry, right? You will make, you know, 80, 70% of what someone in another industry makes with your skill set just because there are hundreds of people lining up for all of these jobs. Um, the industry has its own issues with employee retention and quality of life and the amount of hours worked. And all of those challenges add up to. As an academic, we're challenged with simultaneously trying to figure out how do we best prepare these students to enter a hyper-competitive workplace, and how do we give them something that is not just a rote education on engines that, let's be honest, they could hop over to YouTube and watch a 20-episode series on how to make stuff in Unity or how to make stuff in <laughs> Unreal, right? And, exactly. And that's a real fight. And I think we, unfortunately, we don't have a choice in the matter. We kind of have to do both. We have to keep up with and understand the technology that these students are going to be using in the real world, you know, keep our ear to the ground, talk with them, understand what studios have them training in, their own proprietary engines or common engines, uh, techniques that are used uh, in different industries. You know, we're not teaching Flash anymore. Um and uh, we're not. No, no. We we actually had to tell them it's not Macromedia either. Uh, <laughs> oh no! What about Macromedia Director? Is that still around? I remember taking a class that was half Flash and half Dreamweaver. And oh no, not Dreamweaver. And it, it's I, what, that brings back some good it memories. It still hurts me to to close my eyes and picture the HTML that that software would generate. Uh. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, what do we, you know, teaching them? At, oh, but then man. also. You know, how do I teach a student some, you know, a way of understanding games or thinking about games and being rigorously academic about this? You know, we want games to be taken seriously. Um, you know, I guess insert meme of, um, you know, <laughs> we demand to be taken seriously with all the magicians. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, that, yeah, God, you gave me such good memories of the early 2000s. Um I uh, just want to just to add, I hope hopefully add to the discussion and the points you're making is that um, I'm friendly with a couple people that are very very like cold hearted when it comes to like games they're like almost EA like when it comes to like why would anybody be artsy fartsy about games like just do Call of Duty over and over just do Madden over and over like it's not that hard blah 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 and it's like I've learned to think of it like NASA. Like you, how much stuff has come from uh, all the insane technology, the imagination that has been forced upon that uh, uh, what's been needed for whether it's the Hubble uh, telescope or any sort of 
a space station or whatever dehydrated it's like, food it's because it, <laughs> it's or, or the nasa t-shirts and it's because that they've been needed in in uh outer space like that requires a certain a, a completely different set of uh of circumstances that you got to think about and i feel like gaming r- represents a certain criteria to that extent not quite the same you know we're not talking different atmospheres here or atmosphere versus zero atmosphere but i feel like it's the same sort of deal where it's like okay you can learn you know whether it's like you said simulation or any anything along those lines or further on down the line or gaming which is completely different which it's you know you want the player to engage and have fun and that sort of stuff you know you're making it for a commercial audience and that sort of thing that's that i i feel like that that is an excellent path to go down is all i'm trying to say is like please see this this as a useful thing instead of i feel like the word gaming is doing it a disservice because they feel like it and let me let me put it this way um one of my favorite subjects is transmediation and mm. I love to use analogy as a way to explain to people who aren't necessarily game literate why this stuff matters. Um, you know, we make cheap um, Harlequin novels. We make War and Peace. We make summer blockbusters that everyone goes and watch. We make art house films. You know, we make that mm-hmm. really inaccessible Radiohead B-side that somebody really loves. And then we make, you know, <laughs> Top 40 Pop. Nickelback. <laughs> All these other industries, we've gotten really, really comfortable with the idea of um, they have different audiences. They can do different things. They can be high art. They can be low art. And for some reason, and I think it's because of games' origin in gaming, right? And and it's always been viewed in certain lights, originally as, you know, gambling and then as something that was, you know, kind of childish and puerile. And gaming has always been fighting an uphill battle with its perception. And I think it's not as easy with games as with other things to realize that different things are made with different audiences in mind. Um, I wrote my thesis for my master's um, partially in transmediation studies that I did involving opera and video games. Uh, And I specifically took the Final Fantasy VI opera scene and completely deconstructed it using the techniques that were known and understood to, say, like late-era Italian opera composers and compared the way the characterizations were handled, you know, their utilization of archetypes in opera and leitmotif and um, even just as simple as the names and the language that was used – uh, and how they convey things. And, and, you know, some of it was just the good fortune of Ted Woolsey stumbling into it, but some of it really was. There are a lot of really <laughs> useful comparables here. And when you think about it, um, games have a toolkit for telling their stories and getting their ideas across that is way more robust than we give it credit for. There's this concept, and I think we keep running into it over and over again. You know, we run into it with Kojima, we run into it, you know, with the Game Awards, we run into it with the stuff that tends to get acclaim or notice every year. Game designers, or at least game studios, really, really want to make movies. And there's this battle between, well, I just want to, like you said, I want to play Mad, I want to play Call of Duty, right? There's a craving for rote, understandable, predictable interaction that is doing battle with 
another part of the you know the sort of gaming world that says we want everyone to feel moved by what we do we want to be validated in what we're creating and they can both be true it's just understanding that there are many many different audiences out there that are trying to get many many different things out of your medium um, maybe more diverse really than any of the other ones out there you know we have mobas and first-person shooters that attract esports enthusiasts. We have long-form RPGs and action-adventure games and open-world games that capture the imagination of people who really want to get something, narratively speaking, out of their games. You know, they want to be moved or thematically intrigued by what's going on. Uh, we have uh, sports titles and simulation titles. Um, I am so compelled by the idea that in Microsoft Flight Simulator, I can fly the same route that I would normally drive on the 4th of July to go visit my grandfather uh, that I can't right now because of, you know, the lack of a vaccine uh, in either his veins or mine. Um, it's, uh, it's a really, really broad world gaming and allowing any one sphere to kind of control or decide what it is it should be doing or what those expectations should be um, is just, I think, a little naive in the sense that it doesn't respect just how broad a world it is. Very well put. So that leads me to the question, you say that both extremes can be true, but do you feel like there's a happy medium between the two that can be achieved eventually? Or what would, what would represent the best happy medium between those two extremes in your mind? A bubble bobble. <laughs> <laughs> yes best answer ever so I, I quick mean, so to the I, point I, I, I kid but you know um, MTJ said in I think you can still find his interview on the subject uh, either in like the Taito Legends 1 or 2 collection I don't recall which you know um, he said uh, because he stopped designing games and started teaching game design after a while and he said you know I, I, I want to be someone who plants trees and, and his ah. point was, you know, how much good he could do creating game creators versus creating games. Not to say that Bubble Bobble isn't this beautiful amalgamation of goofy, um, fun, bringing, you know, people to play together in the spirit of friendship um, with the most earworm 40-second music loop in NES history. <laughs> um, but... It was also, you know, his way of expressing that you know, he could foster more creativity by creating creators than he could by creating an object. Uh, I don't know what the perfect game looks like. I, I don't know what it takes to combine all of these disparate elements to create the ultimate game experience. If I did, I'd be way richer. Um, I promise I'd still come on the podcast, but I'd be way richer. Um, <laughs> but well, I appreciate that. Thank but, you. <laughs> I think, or at least I hope, that whatever it is I'm contributing, whatever it is my school is contributing, you know, whatever it is that we as a community of educators are contributing are getting us closer to it, whatever it is. Nah, I think it's bubble ball. I think we are, we're way past, we're 30 years well, past. Well, yeah, that's it. what I said. That was the short answer, and then I get the long answer. <laughs> I love it. Yes, very well put. I have to ask, um, even within George Mason University, do you sense that even the program that you're a part of, does it have to defend itself among the rest of its academic cohorts when it comes to validating itself as this? Yes, this oh, is a God, legitimate yes. thing. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, you know, we have students that 
God bless them. They love games so much. They will go into their art class, and the art class will be like, I want you to draw um, so-and-so. And right, and they want these students to express themselves artistically and really expand on their ideas, and they will draw 30 Pikachus. <laughs> and, and the teacher goes, well, that's good, and you clearly are comfortable drawing uh, an electric rat, um, but I want you to try – like they want to challenge them. They want to get them outside of that sphere, and I think something that we oftentimes have to do uh, in our department is – dispel the stigma that we are just allowing students to indulge in their love of something um, rather than making them serious creators or more to the point artists because what do artists do right they make beautiful things they make stuff that's ugly they make stuff that's profound but they are saying something in their work regardless of whatever that creation is there's almost always a, a message to the medium and so I think it, it is a struggle for us to keep students serious about, you know, understanding the message behind their works and appreciating the power uh, that this medium has to communicate things, right? You can weep if a game moves you enough. You can be compelled to action if a game speaks to you in a certain way. Um, but also, we get a lot of students, and we pull in a lot of tuition, and we are one of the larger departments in um, our college now because there is so much demand. So while I think we still have a bit of an uphill climb, and we will always have a bit of an uphill climb, um, reminding the other disciplines and working with the other disciplines in a way um, that we have the same artistic merit um, at least in the present, uh, our ability to help financially float things uh, certainly doesn't hurt. Would your discipline fall underneath, like, arts of... S like, I'm, I'm trying to think what the dean... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So I, our dean is amazing. Um, yeah. So our dean was one of the guys on my thesis defense panel. I love our dean. Um, so we're, uh, we're housed underneath the same part of the university that is the College of Music, the College of Art, uh, film and okay. video studies. Um, sure. They, they call it the College of Visual and Performing Arts, CVPA. And game design is one hmm. of the departments in that college. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. I was just curious about that. Yeah, I think that's interesting because there's a, a similar, well, I, don't, I don't know about similar, but I've networked with a guy here at Virginia Tech where I work, and he heads this thing called the Gamer Lab. And what the Gamer Lab does is it's basically social scientists. It's a lot of social behavior research, online game environments, you know, violent media influence and that type of thing. But when he first started at the university, he he kind of went in and he told me this, which was kind of funny, but this is all hindsight from him. But like he came in and just taught whatever was was sort of available, what he needed to teach. And then from the inside, he kind of created this lab, you know, every time he would get a little leeway, a little money, and kind of bent his curriculum more toward what he wanted to research and do. And while he teaches basically a sociology class at this point, he's stuck in the communications department. So it's it's hidden away, I, and it seems like he's constantly defending it, but it's one of the more interesting, uh, in my opinion, um, types of curriculum that they have in that department. So I, I was just wondering because it seems like even he has to defend this lab that he's developed that is very successful. There's the stigma around it. It's even called the Gamer Labs. It's not like he's really trying to hide it. But it's just interesting to me that still 
it's a it's a huge billion dollar industry with very successful people that you know from all over the world in all different types of curriculums it has plenty of uses both educational and you know simulation military and all this other stuff but it still has to defend itself constantly for legitimacy within academia so sure and and, and different schools different departments you know handle it different ways i know Jess Morissette um, who worked on the he's got his uh, video game soda machine project he's worked on you know teaching political science uh, and using games uh, as a vehicle for that uh, at George Mason we have the Virginia Serious Games Institute based out of the Prince William campus and you know a lot of our strength comes from the fact that we have military contractors you know we have uh, other um, organizations you know that come to us in the our area the DC metro area is just replete with businesses and there are so many use cases for what our students can design uh, that we set up a uh, an incubator for them where after graduation or you know just before graduation they can start their own small businesses they can operate out of our building you know we give them access to machines and support uh, for a couple years so you know we can kind of help get them off the ground you know, everyone has to do it differently we we all have to tackle what makes sense for our students what's the what is it we can do while we're teaching them or after we teach them um, to make them effective ambassadors of our programs you know what is it that it's going to make um, make them better off and also support uh, the the structure of what we're designing so that the next group of students have something to come for something valuable to get out of the program because uh, if, again if we're just creating um, people that can go in and run things at it like a basic level if we're not creating creators if we're just creating you know tool experts um, you're not likely seeing the innovation that leads to um, companies being created or you know mm. new things being constructed that get you ideas that get you notoriety um, you know if you have a lot of like level one and level two programmers and level one level two animators coming out of your program you know they've got stable jobs but it's not like the university gets a ton of notoriety out of that yeah that makes a lot of sense right on yeah i think it's time for some uh listener questions or at least the one listener question that we have yes we have a listener question this comes from our pal burger champ he says you die and find yourself in the afterlife you must choose one systems library to play in its entirety, every game to completion. Would you choose your system based on the library you've always wanted to play but never got to, or the library with the highest number of good games to awful games? What system do you choose? This is an excellent question. Um, I guess first things first, it's a little weird to be thinking about afterlives right now because the new World of Warcraft expansion is all predicated on jumping into various afterlives. So I have found myself <laughs> mulling briefly on the concept of immortality. Um, also, uh, it's a little funny because one of my side projects has been writing for uh, Pat Contry. Um, you, I don't know if you've read um, Ultimate Nintendo Guide to the SNES Library, uh, but I was one of the contributing yeah, right authors on, on that, uh, and I'm currently working on a certain N64 guidebook. <laughs> and so the the, pr the prospect of tackling, um, the, you know, an entire uh, console's uh, offerings, you know, isn't all that foreign to me necessarily. You know, I'm I'm on my second stab at it, and I guess the question really boils down to. Uh, if you're stuck there forever, right? If if 
eternity is what it claims to be, do you want something that is familiar and comfortable? Um, or do you want something that is, um, you know, overall meets a certain quality threshold in your mind or whatever? And really, I guess, if you're going to be stuck somewhere forever, everything in the library is eventually going to be intimately familiar to you. If I have infinite time to play all of these games, uh, then really, then it just boils down to a quality thing for me. And I don't remember who said it, but somebody once told me the best Final Fantasy is the one you play when you're 12. <laughs> and and not to show my age too much, um, but, you know, CD-based systems had already been out for a few years when I turned 12. And I think I got into games just a little too early. Uh, I had an Atari 2600 and a Commodore 64 when I was like... Uh, Younger than three. You know, I, I have memories of typing Lodestar 8.1 to play Test Drive um, <laughs> before I was in kindergarten. Wow. wow. And so, yeah, it's shock I ended up as a programmer. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, of, of all the libraries, I think the SNES's library is the one that moved me the most, the one that I had yes. the most um, feelings for. And it was all over the place. Take that track. I know. I, know. I felt um, it. Platformers, um, RPGs, obviously. Civilization. There's a game that, of all the different editions I have played over the years, <laughs> one I find myself going back to, you know, time and again, is actually the SNES iteration of Civ 1 that you can play with the mouse. Um, SimCity. Uh, I love the SNES iteration of SimCity. I think that's maybe the most polished version of the original version of that game that's ever been released. Um, you know, the, the stories that are available, the soundtracks that are available, uh, that's, that is a system that I think I could probably prune about a third of the library and never think about playing it and still feel like I would not be bored with what's left or feel disappointed, um, with the sort of dearth of options available once you've gotten through the predictable or the narrative um, and be good. Uh, you go. I, you know, I guess really the X factor there, does the internet exist in the afterlife? Do you have the, like, can you only play with other dead people? Do you have the ability to access <laughs> the real world through That's the internet? That's an excellent question. Because, you know, um, sure, there was Satellaview, but that you know we didn't have a Satellaview and no way to Trev, communicate. Trev, please right? add that to the to the. Uh, make sure to add that question to the uh, yeah. episode description. Does the internet exist in the afterlife? Because okay. then, sure then you have a whole other thing. Because right? then you've got tons of stuff. And you've got like Unreal tournaments mm -hmm. against like randos. And I think that that would switch my answer to PC. Because oh, absolutely, not or DOS in right. general. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on early Epic I, Mega Games stuff, uh, Tyrion, um, Doom, uh, Daggerfall, One Must Fall, twenty ninety seven, the PC version of Civ. You know, like lots of PC games that have a space in my heart. And I think you throw in the internet with that. I think then, yeah. I, I probably I can't take believe PC I'm, over I'm, SNES. I'm 38 years old, and I still say things like 
like DOS in general. Like, what does that even mean? Like, that doesn't mean anything in, in 2020. But anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's right. You're supposed to be using PowerShell um, now. God. Uh, no, it's... I, I, I know... I, I don't know. Um, what I'm confused about is every game to completion. Some games don't end. Mm. Like SimCity. Like, how does that game end? Does it end when the, the battery on the cartridge dies? Could. Um, does the... You know, does the are we subject to it until bit rot or what? I think what you're asking is, in the supposed world in which one can exist forever, what does a game that doesn't end look like? Because we all exist in mortal lifespans with limited amounts of time, so the concept of a game that doesn't end is safe. It's comforting because we'll leave the infinite game behind. But all of a sudden, if I can't you know expire because i'm in the afterlife and this game can't expire because it runs on forever i mean yeah do you kill screen do you just think about all the bugs you could find in games if you had infinite time to play them Uh, but no i mean i don't think games have to be beaten Uh, you know we don't talk about beating books we don't talk about beating movies (laughs) so you know why does a game have to be beaten it's it's if a game is an interactive experience, that's... does it need to have a winner or a loser? That's such a good point. Like, you don't go to book clubs where people show up like, yeah, I just beat Moby Dick this weekend. No, but think about the possibilities. Like, we have the speedrunning computer you know, community. We get the speedrunners oh in on book club. Like, everyone sits oh, down on the couch, opens it up, and then, like, eight minutes later, Done! Get me Arcus on the Joy Luck Club right now. You know what's or, funny about like, this? Our saying. friend Burger Champ here who sent in this question does listen to audiobooks at like two and a half speed. He basically is. Oh, he's a there crazy person. Yeah, right. And, and how about the, the tool assist community, right? Mm-hmm. How about tool assisted movie watching? <laughs> now, okay, like I guess tool video? assisted movie watching is basically a clockwork orange torture scene, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, what? Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm curious, what would that be? I guess that would be like a movie version of like Cliff's Notes. Yeah, it's basically just... the movie modified to like cut out anything that doesn't explain the plot or define a character. This is like Well, it still needs to set the mood. It still needs to establish what is known about it, I would say. You know, like if you're going to do a Cliff's Notes of Blade Runner, I would still think it would need to be a certain length of time long because you still need to hear the music. You still need to see the visuals of certain spots between, you know, and the contrast of other spots. Or you could just, just play you know. the Blade Runner game. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, play it over and over and et cetera until eternity because you got all the time in the world. Very good. Uh, my console would be the PS2. It's a great choice. Oh it it God, really is a great a crazy choice. Person. Now, I, if if we're just going on size of library, big library, uh, number yeah, of quality like 3, titles, three thousand games there. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a pretty and pretty comfortable afterlife. I was gonna say there's a reason that platform blew up, and it's not just the fact that it was everyone's DVD player for a few years. <laughs> that helped. It did not hurt. <laughs> Alex, are you going to see the Super Nintendo oh. be super predictable? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what else I would say. I, I'm trying to even think what it, what second place would be because it's not going to be the freaking Game Boy because that's my second favorite system. I mean, the GBA is like um, the Super Nintendo on the go a little bit, yeah? 
No, that's got too much shovelware. Yeah. Um, it sure does. I it would have to be just the regular old Super Nintendo. Fair enough. The regular old Super Nintendo versus the new fancy Super Nintendo. <laughs> yeah, as as opposed to the uh, analog NT. Oh, there you uh, go. Well, I I must confess that I've kind of fallen in love with like analog stuff and we we've Oh, it's brilliant. I it's, love it. We've you know, I've been trying to go as high quality as I can with all the studio capture stuff Ryan Gaming's. So we've gone, you know, no SSC, FrameMeister, analog stuff, mm. a Mister RG I've mailed off consoles to people to RGB model all sorts of nonsense we've done over the years. Holy cow. That's really cool. Yeah, well, when the world isn't exploding and things are back to normal, you're always welcome to tour the studio. <laughs> right on. That I've, wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, when it's... the world isn't exploding, uh, that'll be like, what, 12 years from now? Hopefully, maybe. I'm <laughs> hoping sooner than that. Yeah, I'm hoping sooner than that, Alex. Uh, I would... um, and, yeah, and I hope so. I, I believe uh, Ion Studios is not far from where MAGFest typically is. So if we get another MAGFest, maybe we really? And that should yeah. be happening right now and isn't happening right I now for, for, for multiple reasons. Um, yes. I, I will say MAGFest, um, it's not the first convention that gave me a chance to talk, but it is my home convention. So I hope... With all the stuff that's going on with it right now, um, that there's a there's a happy resolution to that. That the you know the people that kind of got wronged by that um, end up mm-hmm. in the right, and right. that the the convention in whatever form it is, um, you know, manages to survive this. Because goodness knows it's it's an amazing thing. If you've never been to Magfest, it's it's hard to find a comparable convention in scale, in scope, in ambition. Um, just what Magfest tackles. Um, from multiple simultaneous concerts, you know, an arcade floor that's as big as some conventions themselves in their entirety, um, merchandise. Uh, I know some of our students did their indie games that they showed them off in the, the, the MIBS section. Yeah, and you've given a lot of panels there, and you sent us a list of everything that you've done, and it's just so much. It's it's a lot of stuff. I've spent a lot of the afternoon the other day just reading through some of the stuff that you've covered, everything from... RPGs and storytelling, a little bit on arcade games. I mean, it's it's great, and hopefully you know, we'll see I'm more. I'm scrolling through the stuff Travis sent me, and it's. <clears throat> I'm afraid my mouse wheel is going to start on fire from <laughs> how much I'm scrolling through all this, and that's just from the last five years. So keep at it, man. We appreciate you. Well, I you know, I, I love what I do. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it otherwise. Um, and and it is my hope. It admittedly, you know that that other people do. Um. I will admit I have given a lecture panel to a completely empty room before, though. So, <laughs> uh, I've had standing room only. I have had literally nobody in the room, and I delivered the panel anyway because I figured it was good practice. <laughs> That's a good attitude to have for sure. Also, I had flown a couple thousand miles, and I might as well. Might as well. Well, anytime yeah. I see you on the schedule, I try to make an appearance. So I've caught the last few here. So I'm excited for. For whenever we get a chance to breathe each other's air, I can't wait to go see another one, man. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, I think that pretty much does it. Um, just to sign off here, how can people find you? How can people interact with you on the internet if they have questions? Uh, sure. So uh, I'm uh, on Twitter too much, at uh, WinterION. Uh, we've got our website, WinterION.com, which is just a quick promo for the show. Uh, if you type in watch.winterion.com, that'll take you straight to the YouTube channel. 
Uh, Winter Ion Game Studios produces Ion Gaming, uh, which is our Let's Play uh, challenges and reviews. Uh, some of our lecture panels are also available through there. Uh, so if you just search Winter Ion on YouTube or, again, use the URL, uh, you can find all that stuff on there. Uh, I'm also available, obviously, through my capacity at George Mason University. Uh, if you just look up the College of uh, Visual and Performing Arts, pull up the um, the game design section. Uh, I know I'm under there as faculty. Uh, you can always just contact me through the university. Um, I think that's about it. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, and uh, Happy New Year. Right on. Game on, guys. All right, that's been another Drunk Friend Podcast. As always, you can reach out to us with questions or comments at drunkfriendpodcast at gmail.com. We'll respond or read it here eventually. Please head over to polykill.com if you want to hear more podcasts like this one. There's PD's Power Hour, Tales of the Lesser Medium, Polykill, and more. And if you're not interested in email, that's no big deal. A rating and a review on a podcast app of your choice will help us out too. Yes, you can find us all on social media. On Twitter, I'm at TravPlaysGames. Alex is, of course, at SNESDrunk. And you can find Daniel at WinterION. Winter, I-O-N. As always, the music you heard at the beginning and you can hear right now was composed by our friend Kular. The track you hear is called Electric Starbounce, and you can find a link to more of his music on the Buzzsprout. <laughs> Sorry. Let me start that whole fucking sentence again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. I'll just start the whole thing again. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> As I... <laughs> All right. Let me focus here. We're going to sit straight up. As always, the music you heard in the beginning and can hear right now is composed by our friend Kular. The track you hear is called Electric Starbounce, and you can find a link to more of his music on the Buzzsprout podcast page. Shout out to Josh Leslie. <laughs> that's a hard name to say. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Josh Leslie for our thirst que- thirst quenching logo for God's sake. <laughs> Be sure Leave to- that in there, please. <laughs> Be sure to catch us all on YouTube. And thanks for listening. And we hope you have a great rest of your day. <laughs> <laughs>